you know how the economy's taking a downturn. Who's going to help us, of course? Uh, the Christian right. They're going to get together and pray on it, and then it's all going to get fixed. But here's the funny part. They decided to pray literally at the Golden Bull in front of Wall Street. And they called it the Day of Prayer for the World's Economies. And they wanted God to take over the economy. But look at this picture. Has anyone read the Bible? You know, praying to a golden calf? <laughs> a golden calf? The chair of the Congressional Pro-Life Caucus is calling on President Joe Biden to restore a pro-life policy he revoked just last week. Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey authored a letter to Biden that's been signed by more than 100 members of Congress. In it, the Congressional Pro-Life Chair writes that abortion is not health care and that you, the United States foreign assistance should be life-affirming. Last week, President Biden rescinded the Mexico City policy, meaning taxpayer dollars will now go to groups that perform or promote abortions around the globe. Here to tell us more is Representative Chris Smith himself, the chair of the Congressional Pro-Life Caucus. Congressman, welcome. President Biden, a Catholic, rescinded this major global pro-life policy, the Mexico City policy. As a Catholic congressman, as a pro-life leader, what's your reaction? Uh, profound disappointment. Um, we are appealing to the president to revisit it. Um, frankly, you know, the unborn children of the world and in this country uh, need friends and advocates, not powerful adversaries. And unfortunately, President uh, Biden has set himself up as the abortion president this early in his presidency and his tenure in office. What a profound disappointment. <clears throat> we know all over the world, in countries in Central and South America, in Africa, Asia, there are pro-life countries that are under siege to reverse their policies that protect life. And where's all that coming from? It's coming from Planned Parenthood, IPPF, Marie Stopes International, and they're the very groups uh, that were denied U.S. taxpayer funding because of that advocacy, because they lobby, and because they perform abortions on demand, uh, even in countries where it's not legal. Uh, so it's, it's a very, very disturbing, uh, and he did other things as well in that executive order, uh, including on Title 10, but, um, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of separating family planning from abortion clinics in this country uh, goes back to George Herbert Walker Bush, um, you know, Bush won, and, and we finally got that during the Trump administration, and he's now looking to reverse that, and also to give money to the UN Population Fund, uh, which has been complicit in crimes against humanity, and that is to say forced abortion and coercive sterilization in China. Uh, under Trump, under Bush, under Bush, and under Reagan, uh, we did not provide money to that uh, UN agency because of that terrible hand-in-glove relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. The White House is shining a colorful light on same-sex marriage. It was lit up like a rainbow last night. The overnight show was in celebration of yesterday's U.S. Supreme Court ruling to legalize gay marriage nationwide.
would you please christen the ship? I christen thee Harvey Milk. God bless the ship and all who sail it. to laugh. I still want us to fight. I still want us to continue to be strong. And uh, I want us, to, more importantly, to continue to stick together. And when hate faces us just full on, we respond in what? don't need an ID or health insurance, it's true. Also, none of the vaccines can give you COVID. The vaccines are not only safe, but they also save lives. The best vaccine is the one you get. All three of the approved vaccines are highly effective at preventing hospitalization and death from COVID. So we urge you not to wait and see. My name is Bryony Franklin. I'm executive lead pharmacist for research at the Trust and an ordained priest within the Church of England. If you're a Christian, you may be wondering if having one of the COVID-19 vaccines is compatible with your faith. Christian leaders have been really clear that having the vaccine is not only allowed by Christianity, but can be a very Christian thing to do. As well as leaders in the Church of England, the vaccination programme is supported by many others, including the Elim Network of Pentecostal Churches, the Baptist Church and the Vineyard Network. As head of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope has also said that ethically everyone should receive the vaccine if they're eligible to do so. So military suicide is an actual crisis that the Pentagon might want to address. Lloyd Austin might want to look into that. But no, that would get the Democratic Party nothing. The point of mandatory vaccination is to identify the sincere Christians in the ranks, the free thinkers, the men with high testosterone levels, and anyone else who does not love Joe Biden and make them leave immediately. It's a takeover of the U.S. military. Here's how they're doing it. This show has just obtained a PowerPoint that the Army is using to justify mandatory vaccines to the troops. This is an actual slide from it on your screen. 
You will notice there the sympathetic portrayal of Satanism. How many children were sacrificed to Satan because of the vaccine? The slide reads apparently sarcastically. Then the presentation proceeds to list the so-called tenets of Satanism, which are taken straight from the Temple of Satanism website. So here you have the United States Army doing PR for Satanism. The rest of the presentation is less shocking than that, but it's utterly shoddy and dishonest. For example, it falsely claims that only three people have died from taking the COVID vaccine. Reports collected by the Biden administration itself indicate that number is actually in the thousands. So we called the army about this today, and they can see that the PowerPoint you just saw is absolutely real. Troops saw it, but it was somehow not approved by army, army leadership. They did not explain how that works or what they're going to do about it. My name is Deborah Conrad, and I'm a physician assistant um, at a local community hospital. I've been there about 15 years. I'm a hospitalist PA. I take care of the inpatients. So if you're in the emergency room and you have to be admitted to the hospital, you'll see me, and I'll take care of you throughout your hospital stay and discharge you when you're ready. The vaccine rollout went pretty smooth at our hospital. I've never experienced an emergency use vaccine or an emergency use, really, anything in my lifetime. I've been pro-vaccine. I mean, my kids are vaccinated. Um, we rolled them out to, to pretty much like essential workers and that and all that first. There were many that were excited about it, and I understand we were all looking for a way out. After rolling them out then to the kind of general public, the elderly and um, in nursing homes in the area, we would get elderly in with COVID. It was kind of interesting. And it was, it was weird. It was almost like a week after they would get their first dose, they would test positive for COVID. And then we started seeing patients coming in, you know, uh, I got my vaccination and a week later they're in with pneumonia. I can say for sure in 2021, this is the year of pneumonia, independent of COVID. I've never seen people with so many pneumonia, sepsis. And, and even in the middle of summer, you know, all summer, that's what we would get in the hospitals, pneumonia, pneumonia. After the vaccine rollout, I definitely noticed an uptick in heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, gastrointestinal bleeds, gastrointestinal complaints, appendicitis. Uh, we even saw pancreatitis, recurrent cancers. It was noticeably increased. Where it wasn't just me noticing it, it was everybody seemed to notice it. It became clear to me that there was something wrong. I knew nothing of theirs. Uh, the vaccine adverse event reporting system. I didn't know about our responsibility to report. It was never even talked about when these vaccines were rolled out. I mean, you'd hear it in the news here and there, but there was never this push to make sure providers were made aware that if you're getting patients in the hospital with issues, these issues, whatever, that here, here, you gotta go to this website and start reporting and start paying attention to stuff. That was never, educated to us at all. And I went on the website, I looked, and the first thing I noticed was that it said, healthcare providers are required by law to report certain adverse reactions to VAERS. And I, I said, what do you mean? Like, what law? So, and then you look further, and it had a whole section on it, exactly what you're supposed to report. It's specific things you're supposed to report to VAERS after the COVID vaccine rollout. So that's when I started um, reporting patients on my own. Well, very quickly that became a full-time job in and of itself. I would say within three weeks to a month, I had already had 50 patients reported. Um, and that was just of the providers that 
were willing to tell me about patients recognized that there may be a problem. So I went back to my administration and I said, I need help. You know, I, like I can't do this all myself. It's overwhelming. I'm on the phone with the CDC all the time. I'm on the phone with these patients. I need more people to know about it so they can help me and we can do the right thing. But that was met with then resistance. I work at a pharmaceutical company. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Um, I just believe in research and science. Well, in this database, you came across a chain of emails discussing fetal tissue and the COVID vaccine. Vanessa Gelman works in Washington, D.C., Senior Director of Worldwide Research. The question came up as an inquiry to our MedInfo group. They're asking, quote, did Pfizer make use of a cell line from the aborted fetus? They want you to leave out the highlighted part, which is the one or more cell lines with an origin that can be traced back to human fetal tissue has been used in laboratory tests associated with the vaccine program. And here we have your badge. You are an employee of Pfizer? I work at the McPherson, Kansas plant. Um, it's one of the biggest plants in the operation of Pfizer. We produce some of the most units. This message from Vanessa Gilman. From the perspective of corporate affairs, we want to avoid having the information on the fetal cell lines floating out there. We believe that the risk of communicating this right now outweighs any potential benefit that we could see, particularly with general members of the public who may take this information and use it in ways we may not want it out there. We have not received any questions from policymakers or media on this issue in the last few weeks, so we want to avoid raising this if possible. Wow. We believe that the risk of communicating this right now outweighs any potential benefit we could see. They ought to put that on American currency. Philip Dormitzer, Vice President, Chief Scientific Officer. These are not low-level people. You're showing us emails between the Vice President, the Pfizer, the Senior Director of Worldwide Research about how to couch it a certain way because we would not want to tell the people that it can be traced back to human fetal tissue. Copying Vanessa Gelman, we have an approved answer to this question, the question being about fetal tissue, which Vanessa can probably provide, H-E-K-2932. What does that mean, heck? Uh, human embryo kidney cells, and it was from experiment 293. They've used cells from aborted fetuses. Yes. And they don't cells. want the public to know that. Yes. That's staggering for society because of what you said, religious exemptions. Mm -hmm. And they're denying our religious exemptions at Pfizer. The U.S.-based company Pfizer is holding governments to ransom, interfering with their legislation, even demanding military bases as guarantee. Would you believe it? A vaccine maker asking for a country's military base in return for vaccines. Jerusalem. My name is Ilana Rachel Daniel, and this is the Jerusalem Report. Today, I'm going to take you through a brief outline of life here in Israel these past 10 months plus. It's a story of a mass human experiment thrust upon an entire nation, and is one that needs to be told. As many of you already realize, key aspects of the rollout of the new totalitarianism, the stripping of rights, and the building back better we see being implemented uniformly across the globe is being tested out first here in Israel. In January 2021, it was revealed first by former Prime Minister Ehud Barak 
and then only later by at the time Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself that a deal had been made in the most exquisite of betrayals and without one iota of democratic due process, Netanyahu's government had contracted the people of Israel to serve as Pfizer's subjects under conditions not made transparent to this day. For only two and a half times the cost per vial of other countries, and for, that is the least of what we know, the exchange of private citizens' health record history, we will become the exclusive and captive consumers of Pfizer and the state-run laboratory for this convicted felon pharmaceutical company. Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, in addition to hundreds of millions of dollars repeatedly paid out for their premeditated transgressions, in 2009 additionally paid a criminal fine of some $2.3 billion, which is the largest fine ever paid in the United States of America, according to the Department of Justice. And they're still in business. At the heart of this ambitious injection program is the critical issue of informed consent. Informed consent is both an ethical and legal obligation of medical practitioners. Informed consent was intended as a foundation of modern medicine. It was the answer to the horrors of the Holocaust and the conclusion of the Nuremberg trials and their subsequent codification. And here in Israel, of all places, we shake our collective heads. The people have been denied the opportunity to make a ri educated risk-benefit analysis. They have been denied their informed consent. Um, 80% of pregnant women who got that shot between 1 and 20 weeks of pregnancy had a miscarriage. That's right from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next slide. Pfizer made $19 billion in the second quarter of this year. That's $211 billion a day. Wow. Okay, next. But don't worry. The jabs are causing blood clots and cardiomyopathy, but don't worry. Pfizer makes Eliquis to treat blood clots. Sales are up 13%, and they make Vindigel to treat cardiomyopathy. Sales are up 77%. They got you coming and going. I got more whistleblowers. So I'm going to do something a little different today. You know, normally I, uh, I just speak from the heart. Today I actually got a presentation. The reason I did that is because we've got a number of whistleblowers that came forward, and they gave me some real, real important stuff. And I don't want to get any of it wrong. And there's too much. There's too much. Remember when the FDA said that you know, there's no deaths? They lied. And I'm going to show you that they knew they lied. So let's, let's talk about this. Can we put this presentation up? I want everybody to see this as we're going. 18.1% of the people are on Medicare, right? Medicare and the CMS servers, which is where a lot of my whistleblower data is coming from. Medicare is a very important set of data, and I'll show you why in a little bit, but I want you to remember that. 18.1%. This is the number of people who have died within 14 days of getting the, one of the vaccines on Medicare. This is raw data, raw. There's no analysis, 14 days. You wanna know why 14 days is important, ladies and gentlemen? 
because if you die within 14 days, you're not considered vaccinated. So these 48,000 people that died within 14 days, now I'm going to be fair. I'm going to say probably some of them died from other causes. You think it's 48,000 of them? You think 48,000? You think none of these were vaccine deaths? Because I'm pretty sure I keep hearing the CDC saying, no, we have no credible data, you know, people dying from this vaccine. Well, according to your servers, I don't know if that's true. Next slide. Severe. My buddy Brian Artis, this is for you. I don't know where you're at, brother, but here you go. So, real number on remdesivir. 25.9% of the people treated under Medicare with remdesivir died. 46% of that 25.9 died within 14 days. Remdesivir causes kidney failure. We're going to have more numbers and more data, but it's a disaster. This is them putting you in the hospital, they poison your kidneys, and they watch you die. My name is Fred Corbin. I'm a professional race car engineer. I have a background in nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons study. And I also have civil engineering, aerospace engineering, and marine biology as correlated subjects of such study. Addressing the um, situation where a lot of people believe that the SARS-CoV-2 is a novel coronavirus. SARS-CoV-2 is a subclade of the beta coronavirus family. And how do we know this? Simply because we did cross-referencing by the international taxonomy reviews and then correlated those with actual genetic sequences and reviewed them against the patent records that were available and it is apparent that the declaration of a novel coronavirus is a fallacy. There are several coronaviruses sequences that have been uploaded, but there was not one single identified novel coronavirus, none at all. Furthermore, patents on coronavirus sequences were sought as early as 1999. Up until 1999, patenting of coronavirus sequencing was uniquely isolated to veterinary science. First vaccine patent for coronavirus was sought by Pfizer, and more specifically, the patenting of the S-spike protein, the same thing we've allegedly only just discovered. First patent application was filed January 28, 2000, 21 years ago. There is nothing new about this. And in support of that, we have this document. This is the evidence supporting that. This is the evidence which shows that there is no, that SARS is no naturally evolved virus. It's not a naturally evolved virus. No one has ever produced a safe and effective vaccine against a coronavirus. It has never been done. And it never will be done, simply because it's not possible. When I challenge you with regard to your ingredients of the uh, Pfizer vaccine, I had good reason to do so. Because I hold in my hands an internal document from Pfizer Laboratories, which was given to us by a very special person who we have contact with, called Reverse Engineering the Source Code of the BioNTech-Pfizer SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine. And this is very, very critical because it outlines the chemical and the biological processes which were very, very carefully manipulated 
in order to be able to produce an mRNA that also contain a very, very dangerous toxin to the human body. You know what that toxin is? That toxin is called graphene oxide. And every single one of these vaccines in a 30 milligram shot contains 15 billion nanoparticles or lipid carrier particles within the mRNA sequence. The patent databases that we have accessed proves that COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines are in fact a bioweapon. And how do we support that? Because we have a copy of the mysteriously deleted Wuhan databases that tell us everything. מתוך בריאות שלמה, נער בן 16 עם הפרעת קצב קטלנית. אמנם הוא עבר החייאה והוא כרגע יציב, אבל אני יודעת שהילד הזה מחוסן, אני יודעת שלא היו לו מחלות רקע, ואני לא שלמה עם הידיעה שאני לא בטוחה שמשרד הבריאות יחקור את זה ויחפש את הקשר. וזה מה שאני חושבת שאנחנו צריכים להבטיח להורים, שכל מקרה כזה ייבדק, ושהסטטיסטיקה שהם מקבלים תהיה אמיתית, ולהשאיר... את ההחלטה הזאת בידיים שלהם, אני לא חושבת שצריך לקפוץ על הורים לחסן ילדים במצב הנוכחי של חוסר ידיעה של נתוני הבטיחות של החיסון אל מול המחלה, שבאמת הסיבוכים שלהם מאוד נדירים לילדים. to tell the whole world what people is doing to the nations of the world. My son took the vaccine on Friday this week. On Friday night, he fell off his bed with a massive stroke with bleeding in his head. People, people, take heed. My son is dead because he took the vaccine. He dead, he dead. They are lying, they are lying, they are lying. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. And I am speaking about the lies that the people are telling you. My son is dead. He's dead. He took the vaccine. He took the vaccine and he died in his two days time. People, they are lying to you all. I'm telling you. Share this life. Share it to the world. Let the world know that it's time for us to come out and speak the truth. I'm giving this message to the health department of the world and all the people who took time to put this thing together and know that the vaccines are killing people. My son is dead. Can I get him back? God. Vengeance belongs to God, people. Lieutenant Colonel Teresa Long, and I'm an Army Aerospace Medicine Specialist. 
Senator Johnson has invited me here to make a statement to him regarding my opinion about the life-threatening adverse side effects of COVID-19 vaccine. My opinion is formed from my medical education, training, and my firsthand experience treating soldiers injured by the vaccine. My views are my own opinions and do not reflect that of the United States Army, the DOD, or any entity thereof. This statement is made as a protected communication under the Military Whistleblower Protection Act, Title 10 USC 1034. I would like to also disclose that I have no financial interests. I believe the COVID vaccine is a greater threat to soldiers' health and military readiness than the virus itself. Over 200,000 service members have rejected the vaccine, yet the military is pressing forward without regard to the damage to the morale and readiness to process these soldiers out. We have never lost 200,000 soldiers on the battlefield in a few months. Taking soldiers out of uniform has the same impact on readiness as losing them on the battlefield. Last May, I attended the Senior Preventative Medicine Leadership Course for the Army. When we're given an opportunity to ask the senior leaders questions, I simply ask. So we skipped two years of phase two trials and three years of phase three trials. We only lost 12 active duty soldiers to COVID. Yet we're gonna risk the health of the entire fighting force on a vaccine we only had two months of safety data on? The response was, you're damn right, Colonel, and you're gonna get every soldier you can to take the vaccine so I can get enough data points to determine if the vaccine is safe. I found the bearers in only a few months into the vaccination campaign already had more deaths um, than in any year for all vaccines combined in each of the 10 years previously. I subsequently went to Fort Benning, where I encountered numerous soldiers who told me of threats, coercion, and intimidation to get the vaccine that were at that time still under EUA. This violated me medical ethics, specifically the Nuremberg Code. After I reported to my command, my concerns that in one morning I had to ground three out of three pilots due to vaccine injuries. The next day my patient, patients were canceled, my charts were pulled for review, and I was told that I would not be seeing acute patients anymore, just healthy pilots there for their flight physical. Shalom, everyone. We live in interesting times. Up to this point, we've been looking at women that are radical for the faith. Unbelievable women. Women who have incredible devotion to the Lord. 
Women who were humble before the Lord, women who trusted in the Lord, women who were faithful to the Lord, women that were willing to put their own lives at risk for the sake of his children, for the sake of his people. Incredible women of faith. But today we're going to look at a very, very different kind of woman. A woman that bears none of those attributes that these incredible women of the Bible have bore. This is a woman that peddles lies and hides the truth. This is a woman that cares nothing for you or your life. She gives birth. This mother of harlots gives birth to her children in deception, only to watch them grow so she can lead them to their death. We are talking about the most vile of vile. She is no mother in Israel. She is the mother of harlots. And I'm going to tell you right now, the video you just witnessed, every facet of it, every clip, all the different concepts that were, that were shared in it, every single bit of it relates directly to her. Every bit. So today, I'm going to need your full attention. You're going to have to be sharp because you're going to have to retain what you saw in that video. We're going to, that's going to carry on in the next coming weeks. You're going to have to retain what we cover scripturally today. You're going to need it. It's going to carry on into the coming weeks. And I'm going to try to condense this as, as much as I can. This is a massive topic, and especially considering the time we're living in right now. And so I don't want to prolong this whatsoever, so I'm going to try to condense the best I can. So hang with me, all right? Now, that being said, I want to open up today by taking you to the book of Nahum. And the book of Nahum is, it's not a popular book. It's, it's not a book that is oftentimes you, you, you hear about. I didn't even know the book of Nahum really existed growing up as a young child and going to Sunday school and things like that. And uh, so it's just not something that we, we, we're to delve into. Well, we're going to do that today. And I actually want to kind of open up before we get into this book and show you some commentary by some scholars on this book. And it's going to really help you appreciate this. But Octemeyer says this. We give lip service to such an acknowledgement of the authority of Scripture, but in actual fact, we exempt the book of Nahum from it. Indeed, we often wish Nahum were not in the canon. And the book has been almost totally ignored in the modern church. Why does the scholar make these statements? He makes these statements. Have you ever read the book of Nahum? You would know why. It doesn't fit the narrative of a loving and merciful and gracious God, which God is. We wouldn't be here if he wasn't. It doesn't carry that narrative. The narrative it carries is a bloodbath. It is a bloodbath by the vengeance of God. It's a very, very unpopular idea. Today, at least in modern day Christianity. Some people have gone as far as actually to call Nahum the book, a book of hate. A hymn of hate. I mean, these are strong words. And so, despite its unpopularity... We're going to bring this book into the limelight because listen to me, we need, there are things in this book we need to possess now and especially in regard to our subject matter of this mother of harlots. We need to understand who she is, how she operates, how she thinks, what she does, why she is so dangerous. And to truly appreciate that, we're going to begin here. So with no further ado, we've got a lot of work to do. Nahum 1.1, this is what we read. The Massah, the burden against Nineveh. I'm going to tell you, every time you see that, and you see that a lot 
In scripture, the burden against, now at times it's, you know, Isaiah 13, the burden against Babylon, or the burden against Tyre, or the, the burden against Egypt. What is to follow is hell. That's why it's such an intense title. Ever before you get to Nahum, you would recognize the burden against, and you start to tremble. Because what is coming is hellfire. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now, before we go further, I want to really dig into, uh, give you some historical backdrop to Nineveh. Stuff that is, uh, you know, very, very important. Number one, Nineveh, this Nineveh that Nahum is talking about, is the very same Nineveh that Jonah is talking about. The book of Jonah, the book of Nahum, same Nineveh. Oh, it's interesting. The same, the same message that Nahum's bringing out virtually is the same message Jonah brought to Nineveh. He was commissioned to go and tell them that hell is coming. 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. Nothing's going to be left. But how did the inhabitants of Nineveh in Jonah's day, now, now follow me on this, Jonah was written over 100 years earlier than Nahum. So we're dealing with a completely different generation. So 100 years prior, how does Nineveh, the Ninevites, the inhabitants, respond to the message of God's holy judgment? They believed. They believed in the word of the Lord. That faith moved them to do exactly what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says. They humbled themselves. They prayed. They sought his face, and they turned from their wicked ways. From the king, the government, down to the civilian. Everyone humbled themselves. That's what happened in Jonah's day. This is the same Nineveh. Unfortunately, a new generation has risen up over 100 years later that is nothing like the Ninevites in Jonah's day. They do not believe in the word of the Lord. They will not give themselves to prayer. They will not humble themselves in the sight of God. They want nothing to do with his word or his commandments. They are going to reject it. And yeah, because they do that, guess what's going to happen? God's coming. He's coming to totally destroy them. The greatness of the Assyrian Empire is going to be gone. Nineveh, the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, destroyed in 612 B.C. by the Babylonians when they came in and decimated them at the command and charge of God. Horrifying event. But this is where things get scary. When you look at Nineveh in its completeness, from Jonah to Nahum, what do you see? I'll tell you what I see. I see the United States of America. I see America like Nineveh. We responded like Nineveh. We had a heart for the Lord. We humbled ourselves. We revered the word of God. The, 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 the word of God was in academia, in all the premier schools and universities. God used to be taught. We understood what biblical marriage was, and we promoted it. We were a nation that didn't tolerate any sin whatsoever, any corruption and perversion. We certainly wouldn't have exposed and didn't expose our little children, six, seven, eight, nine years old, to, to pornographic filth that they're pushing in sex education right now in the schools, where parents are up in arms all over the country. 
We were a faithful nation to the Lord. We loved him. We proudly confessed the name of Jesus. And what happened to this country? It became the most prosperous, most blessed nation in the world. Like Nineveh. Nineveh in Jonah's day, what did they taste? They tasted the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness, the goodness. They tasted the love of God. They tasted it. This nation has tasted and seen that the Lord was good. But oh, oh, a new generation has risen today. It's nothing like the generations bygone. Nothing like that. We are now a generation that will not tolerate, like Nineveh and Nahum's day, we will not tolerate righteousness. You want to move to protect the unborn children? You're going to be met with horrific opposition. And you'll be considered a hater. You're inhumane. You want to violate women if you want to protect the unborn child. You want to promote biblical marriage? You're going to be met with some serious resistance. It's not acceptable today. And all of this is, all of this biblical marriage and biblical life, all of this is defined by God's word that we need, we want to receive it. We want to humble ourselves and we want to walk in this path. This generation does not want to walk in it, wants nothing to do with it. I'm telling you guys right now, this is what's going to make this whole uh, study really interesting as we dig into the book of Nahum. This is not history. You are now living it, and, and, and Nahum, the prophet, is speaking to America right now. His words are more relevant today than ever, and we need to hear them. Now, that said, I want to peel back another layer in regard to Nineveh, because there's a lot of puzzle pieces to this thing, and, and we, we just got to collect them and start putting them into place. But if you go back to Genesis 10, we read about a very intriguing character. His name is Nimrod. In Nimrod, I'm going to tell you, he is the first really full-blown typology we have in Scripture of the Antichrist. In fact, in his day, he was the Antichrist in his day. And he is actually called the Gibor Bearetz, the mighty one in the earth or the mighty one on the earth. Every aspect of Nimrod you want to pay close attention to because he's the typology of the Antichrist being spoken of in the book of Revelation. He's very, very important. And there's something about him that I really want to focus on. And that is this. He's responsible for building two prolific cities. Now he built others, but two prolific ones. The first is Babylon and the second is Nineveh. Now, I want you to understand something. Both of these, scripturally speaking, are symbols, are utilized as symbols of evil throughout scripture. Both of these cities, listen to me, represent the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots is represented through these cities. And so this becomes very, very germane for us today. Now, let's continue to dig into this. And I'm going to take you back to the first century to a, a, you know, a contemporary to the apostles. He was there when the temple fell in 70 AD, when the Romans took it out, and that is Josephus. First century Jewish Roman historian, a Pharisee. The guy knows his word. He gives a commentary on Nimrod, and you gotta hear this. This is what he says. He says, now it was Nimrod who excited him, meaning the world, to such an affront and contempt 
of God. In other words, this was the one that seduced them to, for the world, the inhabitants of the world, to turn their back on God and to start blaming God for all the problems in the world. You know, like Hitler did in Germany when he started to blame all the Germans' problems on the Jews. This is the spirit of Antichrist. He turns God's people against God, the very one who created him. He was the grandson of Ham, not great lineage, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. Goes on. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. Isn't that interesting? So here, the, the, the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist comes on and creates a spirit in society of discontentment uh, toward God, creates this, lays this stumbling out block before them and, and reminds all the inhabitants that, hey, do you have anything that's of value to you? you? You enjoy all the food that you get to provide your family. You got a nice warm place to live. Yeah, that has nothing to do with God. That has everything to do with you. You're the one that made that happen. This is what he convinced them to do. And you know what's fascinating to me? Is the Torah, the power of the Torah to combat the spirit of Antichrist. Because all you got to do is read right in Deuteronomy 8. And what you read is is that, you know, the Lord is warning Israel, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be wealthy. Don't you dare fall into the trap that you say, my power and my might has gained me this wealth. Don't you dare say it. It's not. You are to read Zachar. You are to remember that it is the Lord who gives you the power. Isn't that fascinating? The very thing that the Antichrist will come to do is try to disrupt, try to separate us from the Torah. But it will be the Torah, it'll be the word of the Lord that keeps us close to him so that we can't be deceived. And then he goes on and says this. Can't make this up. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny. Gradually, the spirit of Antichrist gradually turning the government into tyranny. If there was any one term used to describe today what is happening to this country, it is tyranny. Article after article, they're seeing it. It's overt. It's not even concealed anymore. This is what you would expect to see with the spirit of Antichrist. Now, it goes on to explain this. Seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God. I want to stop there. See, the government has to start implementing tyranny because they have to break this yoke that you bear, the yoke of Yeshua, which is the fear of God. That fear of God will keep you from sin. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. I mean, it's scripture. The enemy has to break that from you to where you start to fear government more than God. That's where Satan gets you. And then it goes on and he explains this tyranny and why doing this, but to bring them into constant dependence upon his power. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening right now. The, the setup and, and this move to build back better is all about literally bringing us into a place, literally, so that we're totally solely dependent upon the state, not upon God. What do you think this vaccine push is all about? It's the, it's the medical Messiah. It's the Savior. We can say everything in society will be saved. Everything will go back if everyone just goes and gets their vaccine. That's what will happen. This is what we're seeing unfold. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world. Again, remember the Lord flooded the world, right? 
early on in the book of Genesis. And then he says this, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. You want to know something about Nimrod? Nimrod is the one. Now, if you go back to Genesis 10 and you start to 10 and in verse 11 or chapter 11, what you see is it talks about that all the world became as one man. They were joined together as one, unified to do what? To build the tower of Babel. Who led them? Nimrod. The Antichrist, this is what's talked about in the book of Revelation, that the Antichrist would unify the world. He would unify the world. And in essence, it's the very same thing. The Tower of Babel was all about rejection of God. God, is, we're not going to submit to his law. We're not going to submit to his righteousness. And we are not going to experience his judgment. We refuse to be judged by God. And so the whole concept is we'll build it to the heavens. Go ahead and try to flood the earth again. That isn't going to happen to us. And isn't it crazy? When you see people caught in sin and walking in deception, it's because they don't believe they're going to be judged. That's why they carry on. The whole thing is absolutely demonic. And then it goes on and says this, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Do you see what just happened? Isn't that amazing? He goes out and with his his poisonous infection and literally injecting it into the world's minds. He declares war on God, blaming God. You're the reason that our forefathers and our family are dying. He gets the world to come to his side. Everything about Nimrod in the cities, Nineveh and Babylon, the see these cities that he built is absolutely prophetic of where we're at right now the very days we're living in. And so as we look at this introduction, understand there's, there's some serious history behind this Nineveh. There's some context and prophecy. And so with that said, let's dig into this further. Verse two, this is what we read. God is jealous. He's Elkanah. He's a jealous God. And the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. Ah, he reserves wrath for his enemies. For his enemies. This is where we need to become a student, start defining some terms. What does it mean to be an enemy of God? Because I don't want to face the wrath of God. So what does it mean to be an enemy? Well, fortunately, the New Testament writers help us out in this area. James says this in James 4.4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. It's hatred. You look at that in the Greek. It's total hatred against God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You want to know who wrath is coming? It's going to come upon those Christians who become complacent, those Christians that don't want to offend. They don't want to offend the world. They just want to live in harmony. We don't want to experience persecution. So I'm not going to say much in whatever situation I'm in because I'm going to offend the world. And then we just keep sliding the scale and you see it happening in the church. You see it happening right now. Where we're becoming, the church is becoming more like the world. Each and every passing day, you're making friendship with the world. We're not meant to get along. We are not meant. You, you, you know, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't do it. And Yeshua says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you're not out of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We're, if we're not being hated in this generation, we're in trouble by the world, by mainstream. If we are not hated, how is your light shining? 
And why should we be hated so much? Yeshua tells us in John 7, right? Where he says, the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. You are speaking truth and a generation that hates truth. That's why you will be hated. I mean, we're not supposed, I don't know, you know, there's nothing in scripture that I can find that was to set us up that we're, it's going to be rainbows and lollipops for you. And everyone's going to love you and roll out the red carpet for you everywhere you go. They're going to spit at you. They're going to persecute you. And it's time to get some skin. Amen? Amen. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's hatred against God. You make yourself an enemy of God. The mind of the world. The mind of the flesh. But then listen to this. For it is not subject to the law of God. Nor indeed can be. That Who's an enemy? Of the Lord Yeshua, it is those who refuse to hear his word, his law, his Torah, the scriptures. You make yourself an enemy of God when you refuse. And I'm, this is not hard, right? This is preschool. Let's go back to preschool. If I'm not listening to God, I'm listening to the devil. Amen? This is, this is a concept we can all get. If I'm not listening to God, I'm listening to the Antichrist. That's a reality. And so as we look at this statement, he reserves wrath for his enemies. Let it sink in, the depth to that. We're going to jump ahead to verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Rhetorical questions, nobody. You're not going to build your little tower of Babel. You may say to yourself, I can live like hell and inherit heaven. No, you won't. It's not going to happen. You will not stand. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Oh, Why do you conspire against the Lord? Let me ask you a question. What does it look like to conspire against the Lord? I mean, on a practical level. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like legalizing abortion. Promoting it, protecting it. Making its inhabitants and citizens pay for it. It looks like ripping prayer out of schools. Ripping the commandments away from governmental buildings. It looks like legalizing gay marriage. That's what it looks like. All of these things that are abominable in his sight, that's conspiring against the Lord. He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise a second time. Understand this. God's not one of those warriors where he will have to strike a second time. It is one and done. And guess what? There's no more chance for mercy. There's no second chances of hope when God swings that sword. Your time here is over. And that's what's horrifying about this. And then it goes on and says this in verse 10. For while tangled like thorns. Now, the prophet is using imagery here through the Holy Spirit, obviously. And the imagery is he's, he's likening the inhabitants of Nineveh to thorns. Now, follow me. Pay attention. Yeshua, as you go to Matthew 13, he's talking about the parable of the sower. He talks about the thorns. It's fascinating, okay? He, all this good, the, the, the sower sows the word on all these different types of soil, on, uh, by the wayside, and on stony ground, and on good ground, and then some of it falls among the thorns. And what does it say? It says, those are the people who hear the word of God. They receive the word of God, but then the cares of the world come in, And they choke out the word. The deceitfulness of the riches come in, choke out the word. This tells us something about the Ninevites. One aspect that they were struggling with, they were totally given over 
to prosperity, materialism, secularism. This is all they cared about, that money got to them. You know what's amazing to me? Is that the framers of this country were worried about it. What we're experiencing right now, they were worried about. Thomas Jefferson says this, yes, we did produce a nearly perfect republic, but will they keep it? Or will they, in the enjoyment of plenty, lose the memory of freedom? We have. Material abundance without character is the surest way to destruction. It's a bit of prophecy there for you. It's just a biblical template. You know, Thomas Jefferson, that insight that he's getting here, I mean, this is biblical. Yeshua warned us about this. The Torah warns us about it. The scriptures are faithful if we're listening to them. If we're actually going to pay attention to them. And it goes on and says this, and while drunken like drunkards. Now, we'll spend more time on this probably next week. But this is talking about a spiritual inebriation. This is a spiritual drunkenness of unholy measure. And we'll talk about that delusion. They shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. Verse 11, pay close attention. From you, meaning Nineveh, pay attention. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Whoa, from Nineveh. All the focus now is is off the general public per se. All the focus comes down to one. We're dealing with the spirit of Antichrist now. We're dealing with the deception, where the deception is coming from. It's from this wicked counselor and the writer is going to elaborate on who this is. He kind of makes us wait, unfortunately. So you're going to have to put that on the back burner for a moment. Jumping ahead now, verse, chapter 2, verse 8. This is what we read. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. In other words, it's telling you, Nineveh was prosperous. It was blessed beyond measure. Riches galore. I mean, and we shouldn't be surprised knowing what Jonah, what happened in Jonah's day and how the inhabitants turned back to God. You would expect prosperity. It's great. It's like a pool of water, just like America was. America used to be a pool of water, blessed and prosperous, tasting and experiencing the grace and mercy of God. And now all hell is breaking loose as we speak. Moving on, we're going to jump ahead. Verse 10, she is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts, the knees shake, much pain is in every side. All their faces of drained are of color. They're beyond terrified. And now you understand as we continue, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I'm coming after your military. I will strike a blow on that military that you so trust in. Now, you, you want your mind blown. Understand the context, the historical context. Assyria was the global superpower. Invincible, undefeated. Never been defeated in battle. All you got to do is go to scripture. And even that conversation that uh, the Rav Shakeh has with Hezekiah. In Isaiah chapter 36. And the Rashi K comes out as, a, as the emissary for the king of Assyria. And he says, what God or even what nation, what people has been able to resist us that stands? Nobody could. 
Nobody stood against them. And it's interesting. The very thing that they were so confident in, God came out and delivered a mighty blow against. And then all of a sudden, the hearts melt. There's nothing left. Pay attention because this stuff is happening now. The prophet Nahum is speaking to us today. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. And I love this part of it because it gives you further insight into the activity of the inhabitants, the kind of character that they had before God unleashed hell. Oh, it was a bloody city. Now, you tell me, do you think that they murdered more than 60 million of their unborn children? Do you think Nineveh did that? Not even close. It was a city, Nineveh was a city full of lies. They went out lying, getting other people to believe their lies. We are wallowing insane amount. We're in the deep end of the pool in regard to lies in this country right now. Lies swirling around. And if you want to speak truth, guess what? You're going to get censored. There's a reason we're not live streaming on YouTube today. You can't speak truth. And, and again, Plato knew what he was talking about. No one is more hated than he who speaks truth. He understood that. He realized, and obviously these Greek philosophers, uh, deep-rooted in politics and seeing uh, how politics roll out, it's just, it's insane. Verse 2. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain. This is terrifying. A great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. They're tripping over the dead. Literally a bloodbath. This is what happens when the Lord strikes and he doesn't have to strike again to weaken the nation that has sinned against him. How did all this happen? How, I, honestly, how did it happen? Nineveh was on fire for the living God and God recognized them. They were in relationship with God. They experienced his grace. How does it happen where you see that they're just firing on all cylinders and then everything falls apart? The writer tells us, and this goes back to verse 11 that we covered in regard to this wicked counselor. Check this out, verse 4. This is our crescendo. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. That's how. Do you want to understand how this happened? The harlot, the mother of harlots was involved. Seducing, lying, alluring the inhabitants of it to their death changing the system gradually, deceptively. I mean, this stuff is going on. And I'm going to tell you, when you read this right here, the seductive harlot in Hebrew, there's a little bit of shock value. It, it, it stops you dead in your tracks. And what it does is it gives you a much greater appreciation for the kind of seduction this mother of harlots bears. I'm going to put the Hebrew up for you. Zonah tovat chen. Zonah is harlot. Tovat, tov, is good. Chen, grace. The harlot of grace and goodness. 
Now, you look through the Bible, the term grace, hen, I mean, that's, this is used in Noah found hen, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. This is how you see the term being used. You don't see the term being used like this. It's jarring. Now, obviously, this is a figure of speech, but it's intentional. The terms that are being used are to stop you dead in your tracks so that you can absorb the reality of what kind of deception is involved here. We're talking Matthew 24, verse 24. If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. This is the kind of insane deception where this is, would be a, an environment in a culture where you would have many Christians that say, I'm saved, I believe in Jesus, while they're following the harlot. This is the kind of deception that she gives off. That's why the further we get into this, the more you're going to see, boy, we are in trouble. This country is in trouble. Now, I want to give you some ammunition, and I want to just reemphasize something I've already said. But I'm going to take you to Proverbs 5.3, because we need, to, uh, we, need to, we need to have some protection against what's going on here. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. Her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Oh, she will allure you. She will speak so sophisticatedly. She will appeal to your flesh. It will appear to make that this is the right thing to do. It's humane. Just as we see, you know, with this whole abortion argument, oh, it's completely humane. You know, this is about women's rights. While 60 million unborn children are slaughtered, ripped to shreds in the womb. And some people that have seen it have literally, you know, Abby Johnson, who worked for Planned Parenthood, ran for her life. She couldn't believe it after she witnessed it. I mean, this is the reality. So let me jump ahead here. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment, the mitzvah, is a lamp, and the Torah, a light, reproofs of instruction are the way of life. You know, this is the whole, thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and, and, and a light to thy path. Psalm 19.105. The word, the Torah, the scriptures. How are we going to fight against this immoral woman? How are you going to protect yourself? Well, giving yourself over to the word of the Lord, to the Torah. Because it goes on to say, to keep you from the evil woman. From the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by a means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. This mother of harlots will prey on your life. Don't sit and look to the neighbor, or don't even peer your eyes through the window and look at the world and go, I really feel sorry for the world. The mother of harlots is taking advantage of them. She's coming for you. Be mindful of that. Proverbs 7, 2, keep my mitzvot, my commands, and live. And my Torah as the apple of your eye. You know, this is used, the, the apple of the eye, that, that phrase is used of Israel with God. That Israel is the apple of God's eye. And what does that mean? It means he never takes his eye off Israel from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. It never comes off. It's fixed. And here we're told, do not leave his word. Keep your eye on him. Keep your eye on the Torah. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest of kin. Why? That they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. That's why. It's time for you to get suited up in some serious armor right now. And you go to Ephesians 6 and put your belt of truth on. 
and lift up the sword of the spirit, right? Which is the word. It's time to get that helmet of salvation on the breastplate of righteousness and take with you above all the shield of faith. The shield of faith. This is going to get more intense as we jump into, we're going to be jumping into Revelation um, next week. And we're going to be digging into this mother of harlots. And like I said, everything that we covered today, you're going to need it. There's, there's bits and pieces that need to carry over with us.